The Prosker and Bladen meeting 2024 took place on the 27th to 30th November in Vienna, Austria, where leading experts shared loads of great updates on prostate and bladder cancers. In this podcast, we're going through some of the highlights from our interviews with leading experts from the two meetings. First, we hear from Rob Jones from the University of Glasgow on how the landscape of treating castrate-resistant prostate cancer has evolved with the introduction of targeted treatment. The first thing to say about castration-resistant prostate cancer is that today castration-resistant prostate cancer is a slightly different beast from what it was five years ago. And of course, the main thing that's changed there is the fact that we're using additional therapies, particularly additional androgen receptor targeted therapies in the hormone sensitive state. And so increasingly I'm finding in my practice that when a patient becomes castration resistant for the first time now, they've already had either enzalutamide or abiraterone or maybe apalutamide or darolutamide now, and they may also have had chemotherapy. So Modern day castration resistance actually isn't really castration resistance. It's castration and androgen receptor targeted therapy resistance. Um, and of course, the, these, 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 these patients, their therapeutic options are more limited because of that. And of course, the disease is often more aggressive than first purely CRPC. Um, uh, the first challenge we meet there is, well, we would otherwise have treated CRPC with an androgen receptor targeted agent, but we kind of know that if you've already progressed on, say, enzalutamide, the chances of one of the others working is extremely low. And there are lots of trials now that have explored that, and then is the control arm. Um, um, but you've, you know, it's it's very unusual for patients to obtain significant clinical benefit from sequencing one ARTA therapy after another. And so these patients are usually heading towards chemotherapy as their standard option, if it's a suitable one for them. Uh, but of course, there are other other options available now. Uh, PSMA lutetium um, maybe 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 an option for patients who are unsuitable for chemotherapy, for example. Um, although, of course, uh, there isn't yet widespread access to PSMA lutetium therapy. Um, and the other treatment that 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 may be a consideration is also um, PARP inhibitors, particularly olaparib, which of course is licensed in this post-ARTA. BRCA um, patient population. Um, so it's quite important that you early on are getting BRCA, somatic BRCA testing done for these patients, because if you do have a BRCA mutation, then probably your most effective agent after failure of your artery and HSPC will be um, a PARP inhibitor. Now, there's been a bit of a sort of um, uh, stromash as we say in Scotland in recent years, uh, in the last year, in fact, with the results of a couple of trials which have combined PARP inhibitors, and three trials which have combined PARP inhibitors with ARTA therapies. Um, so there's the Propel trial, which is abiraterone in combination with olaparib. And there's the Magnitude trial, which is niraparib in combination with abiraterone. And more recently, the Talapro 2 trial, which is talazoprib in combination with enzalutamide. Um, uh, and I think it's fair to say that all three of those trials have shown that the combination with a PARP inhibitor is better than the ARTA alone in patients with a BRCA mutation. What's less clear-cut is to what extent other HRD mutations benefit, and, and maybe more controversially still, is that two of those trials, the Propel and Talapro 2 trials, have also shown that patients with no HRD mutation 
do also appear to benefit from the addition of the PARP inhibitor. Um, although at this point in follow-up, there's still no confidence that those patients have a survival benefit from that intervention. So, th so, so these data are already quite complicated, but throw into the mix that those, patients, those trials were essentially conducted in a population of patients who were castration resistant, but who had not had a prior artotherapy. As I've just said, actually, those patients are becoming thinner on the ground. And so it is really unclear in a patient who's already experienced progression on enzalutamide aberrateral and dalutamide, apalutamide in the HSPC setting, it is unclear whether those to whether whether those patients will or will not benefit from combination artotherapy plus a PARP inhibitor, whether or not they have a BRCA HRD or, or or none of those mutations. So I think we still we still need to find out more information in in, in that niche. Next up, Bertram Tombal from UC Levain discusses the approved treatments for high risk PCA mucosa. So very interestingly, the only, uh, I would say, approved treatment so far is still hormone therapy in general, uh, under the form of intermittent androgen deprivation therapy. This is a study conducted by the Canadian 15 years ago that showed that intermittent androgen deprivation therapy do as well as continuous androgen deprivation therapy. There is a caveat, though, is that we have never defined what is the optimal time to start hormone therapy? What we know, and once again, it points at the same thing, is that there is no benefit probably of hormone therapy if your glycine score was low and if your PSA doubling time is long. So I mean that we can take as a, we can take as a preliminary point to say that hormone therapy is the standard of care if you have a high-risk PSA recurrence, meaning high Gleason and or rapid PSA doubling time. Starting from this, what you can do is image the patient and discuss uh, and discuss stereotaxic radiation therapy if the patient has a few metastases. Uh, whether it should be used to delay hormone therapy or to increase the duration of the intermittent androgen deprivation therapy is still to be discussed. But what is very important nowadays is the result of Embark, meaning showing that once you have decided that hormone therapy is indicated, it is much better to use a combination of androgen deprivation therapy and enzalutamide. And I say enzalutamide at this point in time because it's probably going to be the same for all the other hormones. And what is very interesting is that it also raised the question, do you need androgen deprivation therapy? Could you use enzalutamide monotherapy. So clearly, the reference treatment for a high-risk PSA recurrence is hormone therapy. When you, should, when you should start it effectively, still can be a little bit fine-tuned. Once you start it, it has to be intermittent. And I believe there's a great opportunity for metastatic hormone therapy to increase the duration of intermittence. And what we know for now is that uh, it has to include an AR pathway inhibitor, enzalutamide at the present time. And we're going to have to discuss whether you give ADT or not. That would be a summary on the systemic treatment. Now, Bram Dieler from Ghent University in Belgium discusses a biomarker-driven study in patients with metastatic prostate cancer. 
So during this session, um, we actually tackled this particular topic with an, an exemplification of our actually ongoing uh, probial trial. So the probial trial stands for prostate biomarkers, and this is a liquid biopsy biomarker-driven platform trial in men with metastatic prostate cancer. So where we are both treating men with metastatic hormone-sensitive, but also treating men with metastatic castration-resistant disease using actually the output from the liquid biopsy assay. So what we are doing in this trial um, is actually screening men with metastatic prostate cancer. We take the liquid biopsy, we profile um, the, the cell-free DNA, and we select then um, um, the men that have detectable ctDNA to then using the biomarker profiles or the biomarker subgroups that have been detected in the CFDNA to then randomize these men to either standard of care or one of our biomarker-driven uh, treatment arms. Now, uh, the first data that we have learned from this trial is that indeed this whole concept, I mean, using a liquid biopsy in a um, to study treatment selection is uh, is feasible. So, so um, um, screening men with CTDNA, uh, we were able to randomize these men to either an AR pathway inhibitor or a taxane-based chemotherapy or a um, standard of care control arm where it was um, a physician's choice. Uh, and what we have learned from that trial is that the men that were actually flowing within to the uh, investigational AR pathway inhibitor arm were outperforming the standard of care and the taxing-based chemotherapy. Looking actually then deeper into, okay, what is now the underlying biology there or what biomarks were actually driving that signal, then we actually learned that indeed the men uh, that were having a AR wild type and TP53 wild type within the liquid biopsy were deriving the largest benefit from a treatment with AR pathway inhibitors compared uh, to a taxane-based chemotherapy, followed by the Tempers ERG positive population um, as such. Um, very interestingly, we actually learned also that one of our um, other bio predefined biomarker signatures, TP53 altered disease, so where the TP53 is, has been inactivated, that these patients actually, irrespective of the treatment, were having the poorest prognosis. So irrespectively of whether you were treating this man with an AR pathway inhibitor or a, um, a taxing-based chemotherapy, their outcomes were actually exactly the same for progression-free survival. Looking a little bit deeper within to this particular biomarker um, signature, we actually performed an interaction analysis as well to infer the predictive value of TP53 alterations as such. By then splitting up our population within the investigational arms, we actually now had a randomized comparison between AR pathway inhibitors and taxing-based chemotherapy for two groups of men men where the TP53 was wild type, nothing was going on there, and another group of men where the TP53 has been inactivated. What we actually saw there in that interaction analysis was indeed that the TP53 wild type group, there in that group, the AR pathway inhibitor was outperforming the taxane-based chemotherapy with a median PFS of 15.2 months. Um, but if we then compare that to the um, PFS estimates that were achieved within the TP53 altered group, there, irrespectively whether the men were treated with a taxane-based chemotherapy therapy or an AAR pathway inhibitor, they on average had a median PFS of around seven months, seven to eight months. So it was clearly denoting there that there was indeed some predictive value in there. And then that overall TP53 altered disease is a very poor prognosis entity that clearly requires um, more or different um, treatment uh, strategies in the long run. Um, so this was a bit in a nutshell what has been presented during the PROSCA conference uh, when it comes to using ctDNA as a treatment selector. Paul Sargos from Institute Bergeonie delves into crucial questions faced by radiation oncologists in proposing trimodal therapy for localized muscle invasive dadicam. We have some 
pending uh, questions as radiation oncologists when we propose a trimodal therapy in the management of localized MIBC. The first one, do we need to treat the pelvic lymph nodes? We have had an old papers more than 10 years ago showing no benefit to include the pelvic lymph nodes during radiotherapy for localized MIBC. It was a monocentric trial and um, the radiation oncologists were not totally confident with the data. Recently, during the EAU meeting in Milan in 2023, we have had uh, the presentations of uh, match pair propensity score study from McGill showing a probably a survival benefit by including the pelvic lymph nodes. So this is one of the technical questions we have in radiotherapy. The second one could be how to best treat the macroscopic disease and how to adapt our treatment to bladder movement and bladder deformations. So we have also interesting data regarding adaptive radiotherapy showing us that we can adapt the radiation fields to the patients, of course, but also the bladder movement and the bladder deformations. It shows probably better local control and better uh, safety signals by uh, allowing us to spare the small bowel, for example. So the target volume, but also the way that we have to deliver our radiation treatment is probably uh, the next step in the radiotherapy field for those patients. Next, Felix Torreira Ramos from the University Hospital, October 12 discusses the evolving landscape of non-muscle invasive bladder cancer and the potential inclusion of systemic therapies. Classically, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer has been um, a, a stage of the disease uh, treat, treated by urologists, and um, there are some uh, trials with systemic therapies ongoing and pending results that uh, some of them will probably um, report their results or their internal results uh, soon in the next meetings we're having. But um, these uh, systemic therapies have uh, to be managed in a way by well-trained doctors in well-trained units. So if in the future these uh, therapies show efficacy and are approved by, by the regulatory agencies, I'm sure that in, in, in our centers, some of these patients will have uh, to be managed by urologists who can manage the toxicities of these therapies. And also uh, some of these patients will have to be treated <clears throat> and uh, the decisions will have to be made within multidisciplinary teams where we will need uh, both medical oncologists, urologists, pathologists regarding maybe biomarkers to identify potential responders and also some other specialties who can help us managing the toxicity of these therapies. So it's like uh, we know that patients who are treated in, in, in tumor boards, in multidisciplinary teams, have better outcomes and better results. So in the future, for some of these patients, uh, we will probably not only have BCG or for some intermediary patients, mitomycin or any way of intravesical chemotherapy. And uh, thus, some of these will have to be discussed in a tumor board within a multidisciplinary team. Finally, Eva Komparat from the Medical University of Vienna discusses challenges in accurately staging urinary tract tumors and how these impact treatment decisions. One of the problems, of course, is especially in pathology that we are extremely material dependent. So if we do not have good material, especially for the biopsies, uh, especially in the upper urinary tract, it can be extremely tricky for us. And cytology is helpful, but it's for sure not thing will, which will sort out everything. And then another problem is that um, 
of course we have limitations with regards to the bladder wall for example if you do staging in the bladder because the bladder wall does not look the same everywhere you can sometimes even have you know very small lamina propria you can have fat between the lamina propria and the muscle so you must be very very careful what you say in your report um, uh, even if you have the impression there's more in it Another thing is that um, it is not always black and white, but even if you cut deeper levels, sometimes you will not be able to to be 100% sure that this tumor is really muscle invasive, for example. So this is something which is really very tricky. Um, there are several, of course, discussions in pathology about substaging, for example, in the bladder, the T1 tumors, because we think... Um, well, everybody thinks that it's pretty important to do some substaging because the more the tumor is invading the lamina propria, of course, the more it's probably aggressive. But we do not have a perfect standardized method. So some people do the A method, others do the B method. So it's it's not always obvious to uh, to be in accordance with everybody. So uh, WHO since 2016, of course, recommends to do the substaging. But as I told you, there are two major systems which probably are recommended, more or less recommended, but no official recommendation exists. And then, of course, we have still the problem with sometimes, you know, with the inter-observer variability, because uh, sometimes, for example, T3A tumors is a tumor which is invading the, the perivesical fat in the bladder. But sometimes you have this kind of inflammatory fibrosis around the tumor. So you don't really know, is this already invading the fat and is it just reactive desmoblastic stroma around or is it still in the bladder wall? So here we have some discordances and this is of course uh, important, not so much for, for, the, for the staging, but it's, it's important for the prognosis of the patient. So these are really things which are important with regards to, let's say, resection specimen, probably en bloc resection. En bloc resections is something which is very useful um, because we see very much of the tissue. We see very well the tissue. We do not have very many artifacts. So this is probably something which should really be upcoming in the, in the next years. And more and more uh, departments do these en bloc resections, which for us are really very helpful. Thank you for listening. If you have found this podcast insightful, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at VG Oncology to join in the conversation and check out vgoncology.com for all of our exclusive coverage on prostate and bladder cancers.